excited to study. Um, we're going to continue in First Peter, and uh, one of the things that I want to point out that I was just reminded of this week is that there, there's a hunger that that comes as we as we start to follow Christ. There's a hunger that comes from wanting God's word and wanting to learn more and to dig into it. And what we do here when we come together is we study it, we read it, and we chew on it. And it's not meant to be something that you just listen to me bring whatever insights from my studies, but also that you dig into it during the week and go, what's it telling me right now? Like, what's it speaking to me in my life? And one of the things I was reminded of as I was listening to a podcast this week, somebody said, you can read scripture and you can go to church all of your life and still not know Jesus, right? Like, you could read the Bible. You could even read the Bible passionately. You could debate the Bible passionately and still not abide and be in, a, like, a loving relationship with Jesus, like, wanting to surrender, like, Jesus, like Matt was talking about, where you're just like, I just want to surrender to God, like, in my life, and I want to learn from him and listen from him. And if, if this is just a mental exercise for us of, like, reading it and going, well, here's what I think it says, but never actually, like, let it sink into our hearts, then it's just... It's kind of a waste, right? Um, but I hope that this is an engaging time to where the, the words that are in these letters and in these pages um, capture, capture our hearts and captivate us in a way that, that transforms life that is good. So let's do that. That's our goal. That's why we, that's why we come together. Um, last week, we studied a really powerful passage, um, and we got into uh, kind of this idea of serving and surrender to Christ and in this humility and recognizing that in the midst of serving and surrender, we can have an influence to the world around us, to the people that um, sometimes cause struggle for us, right? That how we respond in the middle of that can demonstrate like who we worship and what we love and what we care about. And uh, it can have a powerful impact. And so today's passage is no less complicated and difficult as we dig into it. Um, it's, a, it's a fun one. Um, so let's, let's dig right in. Yep, I'm just going to prep you for it. Um, it'll make for some great conversation at Life Group this week, uh, as always. Um, but this idea that, uh, again, like I tried to set up for last week, was that like, what we read is 2,000 years ago, Right? And we read it with a different lens. We put on glasses that are a Western culture that are informed in various ways, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, and, uh, and so I would just say, like, as we read this passage, and I'm going to read it from the message, because I believe that the message captures what the heart of the passage is. When you read the message translation, just so you guys know, um, Eugene Peterson was a scholar who sat there with the original language, the original language that these letters were written in, and said, what were they trying to like, convey? What were they trying to, to say to the people at that time? And so the message is a great way to dig into that, and, and he puts it into contemporary language. And so he almost does all of the, um, the exegeting or the, like, the translation for you in a way that like, will make sense, right? And so I want to read it. If you want to read the actual passage in NIV or NRSV or whatever you read um, later, I would encourage you to do that. I would say do that. But for the sake of the 20 minutes that I get to present this passage to you, we're going to do this. So um, let's kick right into the first part of it. So uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7. So 
Cultivate inner beauty is kind of the title that he puts to it. The same goes for you, wives. And so whenever, whenever a sentence starts out with the same goes for you, there must have been something before that that he was talking about, right? So it's almost like a therefore. What, he, what he's doing is building on the conversation of surrender to the world that you're, uh, to God in the midst of the world and the challenges that you're in for the sake of the witness that you have to the world around you. Because then you can witness to the love of Christ. You can witness to the amazing power of God. And so here he says, the same goes for you, wives. Be good wives to your husbands, responsive to their needs. There are husbands who, indifferent as they are to any words about God, will be captivated by your life of holy beauty. Okay? They'll be captivated because they don't yet know who God is. They're going to be captivated by your holy beauty. Um, what matters is not your outer appearance, the styling of your hair, the jewelry you wear, the cut of your clothes, but your inner disposition, right? The inner disposition is what matters. So we're going to unpack this in a bit, so I'm going to read the whole passage. So it goes on in verses 4 through 6. It says, cultivate inner beauty, the gentle, gracious, kind that God delights in. The holy women of old were beautiful before God that way <clears throat> and were good, loyal wives to their husbands. Sarah, for instance, taking care of Abraham, would address him as my dear husband. You'll be true daughters of Sarah if you do the same, unanxious, unintimidated, right? I like those two words at the end that it's just like this confidence, unanxious, unintimidated. And then he goes on and says, the same goes for you, husbands. So he usually rolls into this side of it. He says, be good husbands to your wives. Honor them. Delight in them. As women, they lack the same, some of the advantages. But in the new life of God's grace, you're equals. Treat your wives then as equals so your prayers don't run aground. All right? So he sets up basically these two sides from... The, the wife's side and the husband's side, and basically lays out this continued conversation about surrender for the sake of the gospel, surrender for the sake of God's love entering into this world through your relationships, through the way that you live. So as we study these, these passages, um, we always want to be doing a good job of exegeting the passage, and that's a big word that I hope you can start to take hold of because this is one of those things that is super crucial as we read scripture, that there's two ways of reading scripture. There's to exegete, which is to lead out of, is like the original, like basic translation of that. So it's like to read it and go, what is it saying? And then there's eisegesis, which is to lead into and say, I think it says, and you're, you're putting in your own opinion about what it says. So what we want to do is say, what is it telling us? Like, what is Scripture telling us today? And what is it telling us about our lives and how we should live, right? Um, because there's been a lot of damage that's been done using passages out of context and in ways that don't work. And this is one of those ones where the church, where men have used it in other ways to say, see women, this is what you need to do. It, it can get very messy when you start to go into this eisegesis phase of like, I'm going to tell it to do something rather than what's it telling us? What is it teaching me? What is it telling my heart right now? So um, 
This approach of really analytically looking at Scripture is crucial to how we live. And so right off the bat, we see Peter um, is still building on this concept of, uh, from the previous, previous passage of how important it is that we have a witness, that we have an example for how we live that's going to impact the world around us. And so he says, the same goes for you wives. Be good wives to your husbands, responsive in their needs, um, because there are husbands who, indifferent as they are and, um, to any words about God, will be captivated by your life of holy beauty. So, first thing I want to say, and if you want to take notes, because I didn't make your notes, <laughs> um, if you want to write them down, um, your holiness will be attractive. And that's the first thing I want to say, and this, I believe, applies to everybody, but your holiness will be attractive. And I know this firsthand, because I want to share just from my experience um, growing up and learning about what dating looks like and what relationships look like and what it looks like to treat women. Um, I'm grateful that my mom's here, but um, one of the things that culture did was she raised me in a certain way to view people with respect and dignity, and then what culture did was taught me a whole lot of other stuff, right? So when I started going to junior high and high school, um, started learning a lot about what dating looks like according to my friends, right? And how to treat women according to my friends. And my friends weren't the best influences. And so I began to learn and discover ways that didn't work. Let me just put it that way, right? Because we have children in the room. Um, so there's things that I started to do in dating relationships that were not healthy, that shaped the way that I viewed people and the way that I treated them. And, um, and for a long time, basically when it went down these dead-end roads where I'd go into dating relationships and end up hurting that person or end up in myself in this place where it just wasn't a healthy relationship because it was based on outward appearance. It was based on what my friends told me and what I felt like was like a feeling, right? So a feeling-based relationship, um, very physical. I'll just put it there. Um, that that culture way of looking at relationships ended up causing a lot of destruction. I'll just put it that way. And many of you are head nodding, going, yeah, I know what that's like, and I've been there, and I know what, that, what happens when that happens. And so this passage, what we see Peter call women to is this inner beauty, right? This holiness that then is going to be attractive. And the thing that I was attracted to was something that I wanted out of a relationship rather than being attracted to something that was actually good, pure, holy, and good, right? So um, as I began to go down those really destructive roads in my dating relationships, I discovered that I needed to quit doing that as I started to follow Christ, and I began to learn what was truly attractive. And at that point, um, I just, I, I remember having this, like, this point in my life where I was just like, I'm not going to date anybody. I'm just going to give up on that because I'm doing it wrong and I keep messing it up and that's my fault. Um, it's not anybody else's fault. That's completely me. Um, and so I just stopped doing that and I said, well, like, until I really learn how to appreciate people, I'm not going to step back into that, that world. And that was when I started to get to know Katie and I started to see somebody who had this, this holiness that captivated my attention, where I was like, wow, that's, that's the kind of person that I want to be around more, right? That's the kind of person that teaches me about how to treat people, right? 
that's the kind of person that lives um, completely surrendered to what it is that, that, that I care about. And so it began to shape kind of my idea of what beauty was. And what Peter does here is he shapes our understanding of beauty, that he says it's not about your outward appearance. What he says is it's about this inner holiness that is super attractive, that when we're around people and just like dating aside or marriage aside, relationships, people, when you encounter somebody who is loving, who has that generous love of Christ, that's attractive, right? Whether you're like physically attracted or not, it's like it's, you want to be around those people. Like there's something really good and noble and just honest about that, right? That is really life-giving. And that's what he's calling these early believers too, right? That might be in relationships that, uh, like he said, where husbands don't care at all about Jesus. Um, whatever kind of situation that you find yourself in, he says basically, seek this pure, noble beauty, this inner beauty that shines way brighter than anything else. And so... Um, Ephesians 5.25 kind of echoes the same thing. It says, A husband should love his wife as much as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. And so there's this idea that the way that we begin to view relationships and the way we begin to view those, these things is like Christ is center, that Jesus is center of all of it. And, um, and there becomes this kind of surrender to that. Um, and this is just the kind of relationship I you don't see quite often, right? Um, sacrifice, commitment, the dedication, um, that all begins to create what he points to as this beautiful way of interacting with one another. Um, so, um, the, uh, this idea of, of holy beauty um, I believe needs to be lifted up. And I think it needs to be something that we as a church um, encourage and, and point to and say that this is ultimately the best possible way to live, right? Um, and so then the second thing I would, we see here in these passages is this um, cultivating an inner beauty. And, and so when he says cultivate an inner beauty, um, that he says is gentle, gracious, and kind, the kind that God delights in, um, we have to ask the question is, what does it mean to cultivate that inner beauty? Because if that's ultimately something that became attractive to me as I began to go down the wrong roads and discover what a good relationship is and what a, uh, what a person that is truly beautiful um, looks like, how do we begin to achieve that? How do, like, what, do, what are the, the mile markers? Like, what are the things that we should strive for? And I believe that one of those things is focusing on character. The character is what ultimately is like is shaping our heart, shaping our lives. And, um, and as we begin to look at how the world defines beauty, it's so contrary, right? Um, the way that the world defines beauty, especially currently, um, is really distorted. Um, when we look at social media and we look at the impact it's having on young girls and boys and image and all these different things, it's it's caused a lot of damage when we talk about the increase of eating disorders and we talk about the increase of suicide, anxiety, depression, all these things. All that stem, stems from basically creating 
or cultivating a focus on the wrong things, right? Focusing on the outer rather than the inner beauty. And I want to show you guys this video that really, um, it's a TED Talk, and, and it really captures kind of that, the heart of identity and how damaging our culture is right now. So check this out. Social currency. Just like the dollar, a currency is literally something we use to attribute value to a good or service. In social media, these likes, the comments, the shares, they've become this form of social currency by which we attribute value to something. In marketing, we call it the economy of attention. Everything is competing for your attention, and when you give something a like or a piece of that finite attention, it becomes a recorded transaction attributing value, which is great if you're selling albums or clothing. The problem is that in our social media, we are the product and we're letting others attribute value to us. You know someone or are someone that's taken down a photo because it didn't get as many likes as you thought it would. And I'll admit, I've been right there with you. We took our product off the shelf because it wasn't selling fast enough. This is changing our sense of identity. We are tying up our self-worth with what others think about us, and then we're quantifying it for everyone to see. And we're obsessed. We have to get that selfie just right, and we will take 300 photos to make sure. And then we'll wait for the perfect time to post. We're so obsessed, we have biological responses when we can't participate. So she says we, and I recognize that some of you are like, no, nah, I can't relate to that, but that is our culture. That, like, if you're not aware of that, then now you are. That that is pervasive in our culture, that value is placed on outward appearance. And social media just ramps that up and perpetuates that. Um, it just puts it in full speed, right? Because, um, because now kids are getting phones younger and younger. They're, having, they're being, um, I think, introduced to this idea that you're a commodity. You're only valuable based on your appearance. And, and that's just, it, it's a vicious cycle of posting and creating and getting identity and then that dopamine hit that goes like, oh, you got you know, 50 likes, 100 likes, 200 likes, whatever it is, that continues just to perpetuate that need for attention based on what? Outward appearance. And, and we all know that, that that's a slippery slope, that that's going to end horribly when it doesn't pan out the way that we want it to. So what's the solution? I believe it's truly getting to this place where that, that inner life is being cultivated. And that's why I started this message with, like, we can read scripture, we can look at it and go, yeah, that's awesome, great. Like, I know that God's doing great things in people's lives and transforming, but not allow him to transform us. Because we don't sit and go, yes, my inner beauty is defined by Christ, and my, my peace is defined by Christ, my my identity, my everything is defined by Christ and that I'm okay because Jesus says I, he loves me as I am. There's nothing I have to do to prove that, earn that, or anything, right? And that brings a sense of peace, right? And it, you could remove social media from that. It could be your job. Like our identity could come from our job and say like, if I'm not performing at this amount, making this amount of money or whatever it is, then I'm not worth anything, right? So there's all these different ways that we attribute value that's outside of Jesus' economy. Jesus' economy says, no, you're loved as you are and you're accepted as you are, you're valued, 
And we need to view other people that way. So if you're sitting here going, yeah, I know that, but we need to be a community that communicates this message beyond just me to the world we live in, that reminds young girls and boys that, no, you're valued because of your, the fact that you're created by God, because of the fact that you exist, you're sitting here breathing, and God loves you. We need to be communicating that. Um, we need to be sharing that. And that's what Peter's pointing, um, pointing women back to here in, this, in this, this situation. And I would say not just women, but men as well. Um, but specifically in those lines, it's women. So, um, yeah, this idea that, um, that our inner beauty needs to be shaped has to be crucial. It has to be front and center. It has to be core. And that comes from sitting and recognizing what are the areas of my life where I've put too much trust in my image, too much trust in my finances, too much trust in my uh, whatever, my friendships or uh, whatever it is, um, and beginning to assess and begin to look at like, what, what, what am I truly worshiping? What am I surrendering my life to? So um, this approach that Peter writes about um, was a massive movement towards, uh, this would have been extremely countercultural. This would have been a giant move towards what it means to truly um, experience the love of Christ in a culture that says, no, you're valued only based on what you can bring to the table. And I skipped something at the very beginning that I don't know if I can rewind straight back to, but hearing this message to us is like, yeah, it's totally normal. Like, people should be valued based on Jesus and not, and based, on, not based on their outward appearance, right? And to us, it sounds so normal. But back then, 2,000 years ago, what he's writing would have been so controversial, so countercultural that people would be like, wait, you said what? Like, in a world that's run by men, right? In a culture that's completely run by men, and by Rome, not to mention men. And for him to write this would have been like, like complete, like countercultural, crazy, like this is, this is insane. And so for us, I want to point out that as we hear this, it might seem normal, but to somebody else, this might say, sound really different. And one of the things that Matt brought up is this idea of, um, sorry, hold on, um, I'll let you guys just listen to this and you guys will hear the difference. Hold on. So in music, there's dissonance and there's, and the definition, just so you can, here it is. When we listen to music, each sound we hear helps us imagine what is coming next. It's what we expect is, um, is fulfilled. We, f- we feel satisfied, but if not, we may be pleasantly surprised or upset. So when we hear words like this, sometimes it's common, but to some people, it's so different that it's off-putting, and you're like, that doesn't make sense. This kind of passage 2,000 years ago would have done that. And even when you read it, if you go back and read it in the NIV, you might read it and go, hmm, 
What's he saying about women there? And what's he saying about men? And what's he calling us to? And that's so countercultural. And that goes against like whatever, everything I've been taught about my identity right now. And it, it'll sound so different. And that's that dissonance that goes, huh? This is different. This is not how the world does things, right? The world says you need more likes and you need to focus on outer image and beauty and all these different things. But what's beautiful is that this will shift something in us. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that happens when we begin to make these shifts is there's going to be a clash. Uh, dissonance, uh, I want to reference this situation where um, a, it was in May of 1913 in Paris, there was a premiere of a Stravinsky's ballet. It's called The Rite of Spring. Maybe you've heard of it. But um, at this play, the entire thing had dissonance in it. And when people went and listened to it, it was so emotionally driven and it upset people so much that they were like, this isn't how you do things, that they were so angry that they say that there was riots, that the police had to be called in to this play because of how different it was and how jarring it was and how crazy it was. And I like this illustration, and Matt brought it up because he loves music, and I was just like interested as I started digging in and reading about it, and this is a photo from the original, but, um, but this, this like very visceral like reaction to this very countercultural way of doing a play or listening to something created such a um, a riot, right? Uh, such a response that, um, that it had this like impact on people, right? And I think that that's kind of what these passages do, that when we read them, we go, that's so different than our culture. Like, what's up with that? But it's really, really good because now there's a lot of music that actually uses dissonance that's now become normal, right? That when you hear it, you go, yeah, that's how the song goes, because you're now your ear is getting more used to hearing that truth or that way of doing things, right? That originally you've just been shaped by a certain way of listening to music that says this is how music should be and this is the only way to listen to it. But as that came on the scene, it was like, you're crazy. You can't do that, right? What Peter brings here is kind of that same concept of like, what you're doing here is so countercultural, it's so different, but what it's going to do is we're going to shape what you think of as normal into a way that's actually really good, right? Your response initially will be upset, angry, like, oh, that sounds, oh, like, that's crazy. But it really, it's only because we've been so shaped by a culture that says all you should care about is image, right? And what Peter does here is he makes this shift. It makes a shift to help us see, no, there's a better way. There's a different way that actually is very, very good. And so... Um, I just want to challenge us to, as we go into um, the rest of this day and the rest of this week to sit with this and really wrestle with this. And I'm going to close with this last passage that he gives where he basically calls this, um, this, uh, this call to men. And, and here's what he says. Um, hold on one second. Jumping around in my notes over here. Um, so... He says, be good husbands to your wives, honor them, delight in them. As women, they lack some of your advantages. So again, that's where you're going to read that passage and go, what do you mean, women are less? 
And what he's writing to is a culture that says women didn't have the same advantages. And so when we talk about dissonance and we talk about a difference here, what the original hearers would say, would hear is, whoa, are you, you're saying that women can be equal? You're saying that this can happen? That's awesome. And so women hearing this would go, this is revolutionary. Like, this is what we should be doing. And so the kind of message that we see here is that he says, treat wives, um, or he says, but in the new life of God's grace, this new way of doing things, he says, you're equals. Treat your wives then as equals, right? This would have been revolutionary. This would have been that dissonance where it's like, you can't, wait, what? And now we see this like reflection of Jesus being lived out, being lived out by these disciples. Uh, real quick, I want to read this little thing, uh, this one line from, um, as I started doing some research about Jesus and how he treated women. So check this out. He says, Star writes that all the founders of religious and religious sects, um, uh, of uh, sorry, of all founders of religious and religious sects, Jesus stands alone as the one who did not discriminate in some way against women. Every religion has some way of discriminating towards women, but Jesus stands out as the one that does not. And I think that is so beautiful and such a good reminder as we read this passage that. What he's captivating is the Jesus way of life that values all people and not just because of whatever like kind of status they have in our culture, that this is countercultural. Like what Jesus calls us to is different than the culture. It's completely separate. And, um, and that's just such a beautiful message, right? It's such a beautiful message, a call to be a witness in the midst of all these things that we do. And so to close, um, I'm not going to show this video. What I'm going to do is I'm going to send it out to you guys this week, and you guys can watch it. Um, but there's a little clip that I want to show you that basically captures these last few passages that we read um, really beautifully and gives kind of a context culturally what's happening. So I'll send it, and you guys can look forward to that. But, um, but going back to this idea of like this being countercultural, um, let's go live this. Let's go be the kind of church, the kind of people who say we're going to value human beings not because of their image, not because of they, what they give to me and what I can take from them, but because they are loved by God, because they're truly loved by God. And let's go be part of that change and, and bringing this message to the community and to the world we live in uh, in the various ways that we interact on social media, wherever it is, um, that we would bring that message. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this time together as we study and as we dig into your word and um, as we reflect on our hearts and the areas that maybe we've been shaped by the culture to think about ourselves or to think about women or men in specific categories. But Lord, help us to recognize that we are deeply loved by you and that every human being that we encounter today is truly loved by you. And so help us to change the way that we talk about them, the way that we talk about ourselves, the way that we view them, and the way we view ourselves, Lord. We just want to step into these areas in ways that brings glory to your name, because we know that ultimately, Jesus, you set the example of what it looks like to love and love unconditionally, and so help us to do that, and help us to continue to recognize the areas where it's, there's a dissonance. Um, we just want to continue to learn, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Let me close with our benediction, and we will head out. Rejoice in knowing that we never walk alone. Know the grace and peace of Christ walking beside us, guiding and protecting us. Let's share this comfort with one another and feel his presence each moment of every single day as you go into the rest of this week. Amen.